Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my humble and hallowed honor to be in dialogue with Leah Brosgal and Rebecca Glassberg. Leah is professor in the Department of European Languages and Transcultural Studies at UCLA, University of California in Los Angeles. Rebecca is the Reinhard Family Postdoctoral Fellow in Jewish Studies at the Taub Center for Jewish Studies at Stanford University. Today, we will be in dialogue about their newly edited volume, A Jewish Childhood in the Muslim Mediterranean, translated by Leah Brosgal, Jane Kuntz, Rebecca Vince, and Robert Watson, published by Berkeley, University of California Press, 2023. Thank you for your time and availability today. I can hardly thank you enough. Thank you. Thank you for having us. To begin, please tell us about yourselves. Where did you guys grow up? Can you tell us about the formative events in your lives that catalyzed the scholars you'd become as adults? Um, I'll go first um, and just say say again, um, thanks so much, Ari, for this opportunity to talk about A Jewish Childhood in the Muslim Mediterranean, which is um, a translation of um, the original, which was published in French in 2012. Um, It's a collection, as the title um, is already somewhat reveals, it's a collection of of stories about Jewish childhoods in um, countries that constitute um, what, uh, what is referred to is the Muslim Mediterranean or lands where Islam was the dominant religion. And so this, this, um, this work has both important French and Francophone angles and an important Jewish studies angle. Um, and that's where my sort of personal story links into this project. Um, I'm a scholar of French and Francophone literature um, with a, a sort of penchant for, um, for Jewish studies. Um, I was born in Pittsburgh to a couple um, who I I will qualify as um, their marriage as a mixed marriage insofar as my father was an Ashkenazi Jew, um, born in the United States, but to Latvian um, parents who migrated in the very early part of the 20th century, uh, and to a mother who was born into a Sicilian Catholic family, also in the United States in Pittsburgh and who converted to Judaism um, to to live her life with my father, Um, but not just for love, also because my mother believed and still believes, and to a certain extent has been able to demonstrate through um, DNA research, that her own um, Italian ancestry includes um, a, a Jewish background that goes back very probably to North Africa. So in a way, although I found my way to uh, Sephardic and North African Jewish studies um, through graduate school, um, there's a part of me that likes to believe that it's it's somehow inscribed in my DNA already. 
um, in more in more practical terms, I grew up um, with um, a sort of idiosyncratic Jewish education, with a lot of emphasis on um, on the Holocaust, a lot of emphasis on um, anti-Semitism, on the part of my father, a great distrust of Europe um, that his family had fled. Um, I remember the first time I traveled to France, my father said, don't tell them you're Jewish. Um, that's how deeply it was sort of ingrained in him that Europe, Europe was a dangerous place for Jews, despite the fact that he himself had never set foot in Europe. Um, and so in college, when I was studying French literature, I found myself uh, drawn to questions of anti-Semitism as represented and enacted in, in 19th century French literature in particular. And then later in graduate school, um, I discovered Francophone literature, which would be the literature written by um, in French by, um, by authors who hail from areas that had been colonized by France. And so it was there through especially the work of the Tunisian writer Albert Memi that I discovered the Southern Jews, if you will, that I discovered um, other Jews besides the, the Ashkenazi Jews. Um, and that led me down a path that eventually led me to, um, to this project, which I'm very delighted to be presenting today. Thank you. Uh, so uh, I will take up the reins um, and maybe start uh, a slightly different angle. So I didn't, there was nothing Jewish studies ever on anything in my radar until I was doing my PhD. Um, but I always wanted to be a teacher. Um, first, I wanted to be a math teacher. And then I realized when I was a math major in college that um, if I I didn't have the brain for it. I was good at math because I was good at school, but I had always kept up with French, which I started when I was in middle school. And so I became a French teacher. And then I went to Middlebury for a master's and I did a program over the summer, um, which they have for teachers. So you can do your job during the school year and then you can do your kind of academic work over the summer. And I realized over the four years that I was there that while my colleagues would get really excited when the summer was ending so they could go back to work, mm -hmm. I would get really sad because my little intellectual community was going to disband for the year. Um, and so I decided to pursue a PhD. And again, there, there was nothing Jewish studies at all in any of this. Um, and there wasn't until I took a course with Leah um and as she said you know discovered kind of southern jews so my experience growing up um my mother is not jewish um but she was the one who was in charge of our religious education that kind of drove us my sister and me to get bat mitzvahs to go to synagogue um and my experience kind of with uh, i guess relationships between as leah was saying you know her father's kind of distrust of Europe. My grandfather is famous in my family uh, for saying the best thing about Poland was leaving it. Um, and uh, my grandmother, who was a Russian refugee, uh, didn't know she was Jewish until it mattered when she was a school child in Nazi Germany. Um, so kind of reading stories where the dynamics between um, kind of local groups were so different from the kind of experiences that I heard growing up, um, that led me, I mean, it was very surprising to me. I had never thought that there might be another way. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so then it was kind of that thread that I kept pulling um, that then eventually led to my dissertation project. And I think around the same time to Leah asking me if I would be interested in, in working with her on this. And it was a, th there was no question. It was a yes. So. It's a very natural connection. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. What are the primary themes in this volume? 
What message or messages does this book convey to readers? Can you summarize the book for us? Well, I think um, in addition to what I've already mentioned, um, the, the summary of the book is basically we have represented here 34 portraits of a Jewish childhood lived in one of six different um, Muslim majority countries of the Mediterranean basin. Um, these are autobiographical stories, sketches. Um, some are more essayistic than others. Some are more poetic than others. Um, the original was um, organized in alphabetical order by author. Um, Rebecca and I have taken some liberties with our translation project um, in part to make this a more pedagogically oriented volume. And so the English version of the book uh, is organized by country. Um, so it begins with Turkey and then uh, heads to uh, Lebanon, Israel, Tunisia, Algeria, and then Morocco. Uh, interestingly, there's, there are more, uh, more entries from the latter countries than from the earlier mentioned countries. We can maybe talk about that in a minute. Um, and I think one, one message that Rebecca and I think is very clear from this volume is the kind of diversity of experience, um, the heterogeneity of experience across these countries and even within any single country. And notwithstanding that, there are some themes that can be identified as common across the, the volume. Um, uh, those would be childhood, obviously, um, childhood in a very particular ge geopolitical setting, uh, language, uh, the nature of language. Um, all of these authors wrote in French, but they were all, I would say almost all of them, multilingual. And so the questions of Hebrew, of Arabic, of local Jewish dialects, such as Judeo-Tunisian, are also major themes. Schooling or education is a big theme. Uh, the nature of memory, uh, nostalgia, what it means to be an adult reflecting back on childhood. The Mediterranean is also a theme, although it's not, um, the notion of the Mediterranean as a space is not addressed by everybody uh, or every author, but it does emerge um, in different ways and sometimes in uh, less explicit ways. And then history is also a big theme, also being a kind of subject of, of history um, is an important um, an important factor for, I would say, all of these authors. Rebecca, no, uh, did you, would you like to jump in? And I think I, I misspoke. Um, I said Israel when I meant Egypt. Um, yeah, so, slip. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when I was thinking, I guess I, I took the question maybe a slightly different uh, direction, um, but I was thinking if I could compare our volume to the original volume, um, in addition to what Leah has pointed out, um, I am thinking about teaching from this when I am at Stanford. So I was mm -hmm. thinking a lot in terms of how I might use this with my students. So right. for me, I think the kind of changes we've made um, have to do with scholarly apparatus um, mm -hmm. that provide a little bit more. Um, there's an intro that Leah wrote. There's many more footnotes. Um, mm -hmm. I wrote some country briefs to give some kind of background context to uh the different countries that are represented. Mm -hmm. um, and then interestingly, with the reorg, I realized while reading it, and again, I had reread all mm -hmm. of these essays many times <laughs> and kind of in the different country units, mm -hmm. um, but how reorganizing allowed certain themes to pop out among mm -hmm. kind of commonalities between writers expressing um, similar aspects of childhood in their particular country. Um, mm -hmm. But then also kind of the opposite of that, that sometimes mm -hmm. by putting all of the essays 
from I'm thinking of Algeria in particular together, and I know we'll mm-hmm. talk about this later. Um, kind of the Camus decree pops up over and over, but very differently. Um, mm-hmm. So how the reorg allows for both kind of the um, emergence of these themes and also mm-hmm. the way that um, these themes are dealt with very differently um, mm-hmm. in different mm-hmm different essays. I think you're spot on on that. And I also, I, you, you pointing that out made me realize and reread some of these differently. So for example, I noticed how important the um, the, the capital tax that was placed on the Jews in Turkey, how, mm-hmm. how important that is. It comes up in every single essay um, and everybody mentions it as, and I should, I should correct myself, it was a tax that was placed on minorities. And all of the all four of the Turkish authors in the volume mention that tax, and they're also very careful to mention that it wasn't just an anti-Semitic tax; mm-hmm. that it was um, it was an, a kind of attack on all the the Turkish minorities. And through that lens, then you can kind of reread the Turkish essays as being very interested, also as representing the Jews as part of a kind of constellation mm-hmm. of minorities within the country. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Why is the volume of short stories on Jewish family life in the early 20th century Mediterranean region relevant in the year 2023? That is a great and, and difficult question. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad, I hope it does read as relevant and I'm glad if it does. Um, one answer might be that, um, of course, the conflict in the Middle East is one of the major conflicts of our time, and I think has produced a kind of a kind of a narrative of con- conventional wisdom that, that Jews and Muslims are something like natural-born enemies. And I think um, even if we do in this volume find some of the stories that speak to tensions within. Um, between the two communities in the various countries. And some do also talk about anti-Semitism, whether it takes the form of verbal taunts or actual physical violence. I would say just as many, if not more, of the stories actually speak to a childhood where young Jews Jews and Muslims lived in similar environments, experienced similar predicaments, particularly with respect to the colonizer, Mm -hmm. and in many ways held more in common with one another than with their colonial occupant and lived their cohabitation in a kind of organic fashion. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important message for people to hear. Um, And I can't help but think that a revision of the kind of enmity narrative would be relevant at any time. But just as we're dealing with in the case of the Holocaust, where the survivors are now passing away and we don't have access directly to their stories, the generation that lived this colonial cohabitation um, is also bound to pass away. And I think it's great to have committed these stories to paper before before too long um, so we can still hear their voices. Yeah, and if I could add, I think um, when I, I... Thinking about a course that I taught last year, um, just the the idea that there for many students, kind of, I taught a Gen Ed class at UCLA for freshmen, and the discovery that there are there ever were Jews in mm-hmm. Muslim lands right. was like a total surprise. <laughs> um, and in English, there's not a lot of resources. There's That's much right. more history, but when you want mm-hmm. to teach literature or culture or mm-hmm. to get at kind of what it meant for that to be a reality. We don't have so many resources as literary scholars um, to share with students who don't speak French. Um, So this for me, I feel like is is huge in that respect um, for my work. And I think also for 
other people who are interested in having these conversations with students um, for representing kind of the quotidian so, mundane. Yeah, exactly right. I was going to say the subjective experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely right. Yeah. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? No, I was going to say, I think we have the same answer to that in that we, we hope that they will be interested in reading the book. <laughs> and I, I don't know if it's, if it's... recommend the book more. Uh, <laughs> I've grown every time I've reread the book by noticing new things, by seeing things from different angles and being impressed by the depth and multivocality of the various stories presented here. It's great to hear. Who was Leila Sabar? Can you contextualize her? Leila Sabar is um, a living author. Uh, she was born in 1941 in colonial Algeria in a town called Afu. She is the um, she is the original creator of this volume. In other words, um, she decided to. Um, call on writers from uh, Jewish writers from across the the Mediterranean to to testify, if you will, to 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 talk about and write about their their Jewish childhoods, and so she is the um, the convener and the editor of the original in French. Um, her subject position is, is pretty interesting compared to the company she's keeping in this volume. Uh, Lena Sebar is actually not Jewish. Um, so she's provided a preface uh, to the French version that we also included in the um, English language translation. Um, obviously not, not testifying to her own experience as a Jew, but testifying to her experience about hearing the word Jew as a child and hearing that it was bad to be a Jew, uh, but also hearing that it was bad to be an Arab. And so she sort of undertakes this, this project as a way of kind of using childhood as what she calls a creative archaeology. Um, Seba herself is also a product of a kind of mixed marriage. Her mother was French, her father was Algerian. They were both school teachers in colonial uh, Algeria. Uh, Sebar um, had a secular upbringing, even though her father was, um, was Muslim. Um, interestingly, she grew up speaking French and never learned Arabic, or at least that's what she claims, despite the fact that she's one of several children and her brothers and sisters apparently learned Arabic. So it's an interesting um, sort of facet of her, um, of her own personal narrative. She moved to France at the age of 17, bound for university. She ended up staying on. She married, had children. Um, in addition to her sort of daily work teaching French at a French um, at a middle school in Paris, um, she began publishing essays and novels in the 1980s. And her work took what I would call kind of distinctive autobiographical turn with a series of three essays that are all about her relationship to Arabic and to her parents. Um, not all of those have been translated into English, so I won't um, I won't weigh us down with the titles. But I would point out um, the second installment of the the trilogy, called, which is which has been translated into English under the title Arabic as a Secret Song, which was published in 2015 by the University of Virginia Press. Um, and if readers find themselves compelled at all by her style in the preface to a Jewish childhood, they might also be interested in checking out um, Arabic as a Secret Song. Uh, Rebecca, did you want to follow up with anything on Sebar? Yeah, sure. So uh, in terms of kind of where she fits in the literary scene, she mm -hmm. is an interesting um, author in that I, I have seen her characterized as different, her literature characterized as different and sometimes opposing categories. Mm -hmm. um, so 
oftentimes, as Leah was saying earlier, with Francophone literature, um, which we often use that term to refer to literature written in French, often by kind of formerly colonized um, or in the early stages, kind of currently colonized um, subjects, she doesn't quite fit in that category because although her father was an Algerian Muslim, so he would have been a colonized subject, uh, her mother was French. So she is kind of an uncomfortable, can sometimes sit uncomfortably at that line. Um, And then also uh, there is, I think Leah, you know a bit more, you've done more on Beur literature, but Mm -hmm. literature written by uh, people who kind of came of age in France of right. North African, often Algerian background. Right. Um, but so kind of much of that experience is inflected in kind of like the knowledge of of having Arabic, um, right. but living in France and speaking in French. And since she doesn't have Arabic as a language, right. uh, she doesn't quite comfortably fit in that category either. Right. Um, so, and that didn't really strike me until again, I was reading it this week, this kind of in-betweenness of being all of these things, and then mm-hmm. in some ways not quite fitting in any category as well, mm-hmm. um, kind of dovetails very nicely with some of the dynamics that are brought up by the authors of, of being Jewish in these lands mm-hmm. where they are, you know, completely. And yet also, we talked right. in my class about being kind of like French asterisks. So maybe, you know, French Turkish. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly right. I couldn't agree more. Perfect. What are the different forms of narration in the stories here? What are the different approaches to storytelling that the narrators employ? How do the different narrators and narrative styles different differ from one another? So as far as we understand things, the only constraint uh, Leila Sebar gave to the, the individual she contacted about participating in the volume was that they should provide a photo of themselves as a child. And so one common thread that we find in not all, but almost all the stories is the author who begins by commenting on the photo that they've included, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting. Then there's one case where somebody says they don't have any photos of themselves as a child, and another case where somebody prefers to offer a piece of artwork instead of a photo. So there's some interesting variations on that theme. But in terms of narrative approach, um, my understanding is the con- the contributors had pretty much um, carte blanche in terms of how they wanted to talk about their childhood. And so we have um, we have some essays that feel strictly autobiographical that where the author is clearly saying I and talking about themselves and rehearsing you know their 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 childhood, their birth, where, when, how, etc. Um, we have a number of essays that seem to favor kind of what I would call reportage style narration where it's all about the facts and placing things into a historical context. Um, some some of the contributors take a more um, conversational tone, res- responding to Leila Sebar as if they were writing a letter to her, even saying things like, Dear Leila, or what can I tell you about my Jewish childhood, and things like that. Um, a couple of the essays are vaguely fictionalized, um, where the author uses the pronoun I, but names himself differently than what his actual name is. So the narrating I is not the same as the, um, the authorial I. 
some of them are quite poetic. Um, I would point out, for example, one of the Egyptian essays by Rita Rachel Cohen, um, extremely sort of fluid and impressionistic in terms of uh, the recounting of childhood. Also one of the Algerian essays um, by uh, Robert Dadoun, uh, also very, uh, very poetic, very sort of, um, elegiac in its evocations of the Algerian city of Oran, which is the city of his birth. Um, some, uh, some, one of them takes the form of a letter to uh, the author's grandchildren, which um, we were talking about intergenerational questions earlier, mm. which is a sort of um, nice kind of um, uh, epistolic way of sort of passing the memories along to the next generation. Um, so in, in short, um, the, the forms of narration are, are quite different across, uh, across the volume. Um, and make for, I think, a, a fairly interesting and, um, you know, sort of spicy kind of read. Thank you. What were the challenges involved in translating the narratives presented here? Rebecca, do you want to jump in? Sure. I was going to say, speaking of spicy kind of read, um, one of the kind of biggest discussions that Leah and I had um, was kind of over the duration of the project had to do with the what do we do with non-French words in the text many of which have to do with food um this is not something that's treated uniformly throughout the texts um of course but even sometimes within one text there will be a word um that might be of Arabic origin uh or Turkish origin that is written differently <laughs> in the same mm -hmm. essay um mm -hmm. so do do we standardize that um, so it's the same throughout. Um, and if we do standardize, how do we standardize? That was a big um, yeah. question. Um, and then one of the things that I found, uh, again, kind of thinking about food, but not only, is that what works in one essay doesn't always work in another. And occasionally, mm -hmm. again, within the same essay. So something as small as the fact that um, in French, the word Arab can be mm -hmm. translated as both Arab and Arabic, right. uh, which for an English audience, those are very different and mean mm -hmm. different things. Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes you have a phrase that's a little bit more fluid or might sound much more natural in French, but then figuring out kind of what valence you want that to have in mm -hmm. English uh, was not always a straightforward process. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, I mean, so, some of the contributors seem to be very aware of their audience in their writing, um, often providing sort of definitions of words in parentheses. Some of the authors actually provided their own footnotes. Um, some of them explained their references to historical events. Um, others don't. And so one of the questions for us as translators with a kind of eye to pedagogy was, how much do we explain, right? Normally a translator doesn't want to do any explanation at all. Um, but given, given the subject matter we're dealing with, and again, given the hopes that this book will be taken up um, in uh, institutional and academic settings, um, we, we did ultimately decide to add some more context in the form of footnotes. So hopefully without denaturing um, the prose and the authorial voice, we've tried to add in a little bit more. Um, but those decisions were always a bit fraught and complicated and um, <laughs> made, made for some great conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but I think that was probably the biggest challenge. Mm. In your opinion and perspective, where does the quote-unquote Mediterranean begin and end? I noticed that there are no pieces from Syria, Greece, or Italy here. 
what does this mean for how we bound and define the Mediterranean? Moreover, I noticed that the authors of the stories live in Egypt, in Lebanon, in Algeria, in Tunisia, etc., and are not expatriates or emigrants living abroad. To what degree should or should not writers from these countries living in Western Europe or Africa or Sub-Saharan Africa or North America or South America mm -hmm. be considered part of, quote unquote, the Mediterranean? Yeah. I mean, this is also this is a question that sort of dogs um, literary categories, I have to say, you know, what 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 makes um, X kind of literature, right? What makes what makes a novel a French novel? Is it because the author is French? Is it because it's set in France? Um, what does it mean if an author is written by somebody who was born in France, but now lives in New York, for example? And these kinds of questions um, are ones that we, we have to wrestle with. Um, I should point out that all, almost all of the contributors to this volume uh, no longer reside in their countries of origin. Actually, a few of them have returned, um, notably two of the Turkish authors, um, one of the Moroccan authors, I believe, as well. But most of them live in France, uh, currently make their permanent homes in France or um, in a couple of cases in the United States. Um, and so the question of their identity as authors, who do they represent, is actually a really interesting one. Um, the question of how one defines the Mediterranean is also, as it turns out, perhaps more complicated than geographers might have thought. Um, it's, it's true, as you point out, there are no pieces from Syria, Greece, or Italy. Um, I think to a certain extent, the questions of Greece and Italy are obviated by the fact that uh, this is defined, um, the, the work is defined, um, defines the Mediterranean as the Muslim Mediterranean, mm -hmm. which Greece and Italy don't participate in by virtue of, of not being Muslim countries. Um, so, and also to a certain extent, perhaps even the inclusion of Turkey is a bit of a surprise. It does touch the Mediterranean, but isn't always conceived of as part of the Mediterranean. Um, so, I mean, I think one thing I took away from writing the introduction was a sort of, um, kind of delightful unending conversation with myself and the scholars I was reading about where the Mediterranean is and where its <laughs> limits are, which seems to be something that can't quite be defined. Um, but I, I would point out that um, there are some production issues that influenced um, the, the final version that we're reading here, which is that um, I think Leila Sebar did reach out to um, uh, individuals who had grown up in Syria and Libya, for example, um, Jews, um, who might have been able to participate in this conversation and for whatever reason didn't want to be part of the volume. Um, there were also many other authors uh, to whom she re for, from whom she requested essays who decided for, again, for whatever reason, not to participate. Um, and so you see there's a kind of imbalance, right? We have two authors from Lebanon and 10 from Morocco, right? So it gives a kind of uh, a kind of skewed perspective of um, of the literary production by Jews from those uh, from those areas. One thing I'll point out, and then I'll pass this over to Rebecca, is that one of the authors who goes under the sort of Algerian category in this book is actually a Libyan Jew, um, author by the name of Aldo Nawri, um, was born in Libya to Libyan Jewish parents and immigrated to um, to uh, Algeria um, in the 40s, I believe. 
Um, and so he could, in fact, represent Libya in a way if we wanted to think about um, his experience that way. He does in his, in his essay talk about both being a Libyan Jew and living in Algeria. Yeah, I think and I don't know if I have much to add, but I did kind of in that thinking about the Muslim Mediterranean, wondering about Syria and then in particular Libya and wondering maybe if Aldo mm-hmm. Nauri might be our, our honorary right, <laughs> Libyan. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also... I don't know, Leah, you might correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that, you know, kind of from my understanding, you know, France dabbled in a lot of places, whether they right. established official colonial holdings, right. um, such as Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia, or whether they had kind of more short-lived, um, mm-hmm. uh, short-lived experiences, mm-hmm. yeah, in Egypt yeah. or in, in right. Lebanon and in Syria. Um, right. But I don't know that France made so many inroads officially in Libya. But then right. the question of the AIU, which is how we end up with, you know, writers in Turkey writing in French. Right. Um, so I, you know, that's something that came to me, you know, I wonder, you know, French language writing from Libya, particularly right. Libyan Jews. I have done, right. I did a little translation piece for for Sarah Stein written by an AIU student in Tripoli mm-hmm. in Libya. Right. Um, right. So it was kind of, right. it was a, an interesting question that I hadn't thought about again until we were preparing and that now mm-hmm. I would like to learn more about. So That's right. Yeah. And Rebecca, if I can jump in um, mm-hmm. before the next question for the folks at home, can you tell us what the AIU is? Oh, sorry. Yeah. So the AIU is the, I always uh, mix mix up my adjectives here, the mm-hmm. Alliance Israelite Universelle, exactly. uh, which right. was a yeah, the French Jewish philanthropic organization right. uh, whose main goal was it, it was a to be a little bit uh, to to summarize and maybe not the most um, how would you summarize nicely a little bit kind of the Jewish French arm of the civilizing mission kind of the idea of to bring uh, right. Jews of Muslim lands into modernity into enlightenment a la the French way of I life. Have by a French education, yeah. Mm-hmm. Notably, they established schools throughout the, the Middle East and North Africa, um, which explains in part uh, the, uh, the the fact that some of our Turkish authors grew up speaking, speaking French. Mm-hmm. What does this book teach us about Jewish-Arab and Muslim-Jewish relations in the countries presented? I think... I'm going to let Rebecca take this one. Yeah, I I will. Again, I think this is when we, we were speaking earlier when I said that some of the, the answers might, you know, we can bounce around a bit because many of the answers kind of kept coming up. I mean, for me, I think when I'm reflecting on my teaching, you know, just that, you know, that, that there were Jews in Muslim lands um, at all. I think this book, you know, shows kind of represents the myriad relationships between different groups of people um, that we aren't necessarily often shown as existing in a variety of ways. Kind of there's a certain narrative that now tends to kind of dominate. Um, so seeing that kind of there are alternatives to this kind of a sir enemy that that is a Leila Sabar quote, right, yeah. enemy sisters, enemy sisters, um, yeah. uh, <laughs> um, showing kind of the multiple and variegated ways in which these relationships take place. I think that is that teaches that taught me a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And then also, I think um, one of the things that struck me again as I was rereading is how the book, and I I don't think this is intentional on the part of the authors, but the way that kind of the colonial endeavor eroded relationships or kind mm-hmm. of what's 
you can kind of see the wedge even in mm-hmm. the places where France mm-hmm. is not the colonizing power. Um, mm-hmm. You can see the French influence kind of carving out space between communities that had traditionally coexisted. Um, yes, with tension, but also with a lot of kind of harmony uh, for, mm-hmm. in some mm-hmm. cases, you know, centuries, millennia. Uh, so right. that I think is a important contribution of the book. Yeah, absolutely right. How are religion and faith presented in these stories? What do these pieces teach us about the communal, social, and aesthetic dynamics of Judaism? Mm. Well, I would say there's a heavy insistence on what one might call kind of cultural Judaism over over pious Judaism for the most part. Um, Most of the contributors describe growing up in a kind of more or less secular environment. Um, Some mention never going to synagogue. Um, Some mention not even understanding they were Jewish until they became teenagers. Um, I love the first line of um, Roni Margulis, one of our Turkish authors. Um, the first line of his uh, his piece is, my Jewish childhood in Istanbul was not a very Jewish childhood. And he goes <laughs> on to explain why, but there's several sort of uh, phrases in other essays that, that echo that, um, that sentiment of Judaism being lived culturally through food, through um, through meals, um, to a certain extent through language, but there's, we don't have a lot of scenes uh, that take place in the synagogue in this, in this collection. Yeah, I think one of the things, um, a moment that I thought kind of thinking back or to our earlier discussion when we were chatting beforehand about gender, um, a line that struck me when I was rereading um, one of the essays, um, my grandmother was very observant. And then what does the author go on to say is then she talks about all the food that her grandmother made. Right, um, right. So maybe what what does it look like to be a pious Jew as a as a woman mm-hmm. um, or to be a pious Jew as a man uh, was right. a question that came up that was in, in Heller Goldenberg's essay. Exactly. Um, and then one of one of the points, I think one of my favorite parts, or the, when I re- read the volume originally in French, um, I think, Leah, when you first asked me if I wanted to be part of this project, you gave me a copy of the book. You said, you know, don't answer now, read the book and then let me know. <laughs> um, but there's a, a moment in André Azoulay's essay where he's talking about, um, you know, he's in Morocco and one of their uh, like friends and neighbors goes to Jerusalem and brings back a little bag of soil yeah and gives it to his dad because he Mm -hmm. he, the jews couldn't go at that point but he as a muslim could go and brings back this you know Mm -hmm. holy land a little bit of holy land right so that you could have and it 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 you know as as the youth say it hit me in the feels it was just a really (laughs) powerful moment yeah yeah um but thinking again more it seems to be more about kind of actions i think that i see the judah you know these dynamics taking place than it does about kind of professions of faith or discussion of belief. Exactly right. Yeah. The question of believing does not come up at all. It's very interesting. What is this volume's contribution to the history of colonialism in the Middle East and North Africa? What can seasoned scholars and veteran students of colonialism in the Arab world learn from the depictions of Jewish life in these stories? Mm. I guess, well, I would I would probably caution against reading this volume as a kind of history textbook. Um, I do think nonetheless, it, it, it represents um, 
the highly differentiated experiences across the Middle East and North Africa region and within individual nations of imperial projects, shall we say. Um, colonization played out very differently in, if we can even use that word when it comes to talking about Turkey, uh, played out very differently in, um, in the Middle East in what would become Lebanon and Syria. Uh, than it did in the Maghreb or the countries uh, of Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia, um, where the impact of French policy, French imperial policy, is extremely strong, um, particularly in Algeria. Um, and so we see, and I think it, this does um, does differentiate the Maghrebi, again, Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisian uh, countries and their representation from um, Egypt, Lebanon, and Turkey, um, we really see uh, the, the degree to which the French colonial project impacts and fractures. Um, this is something Rebecca was mentioning as well, the kind of natural evolution of relationships between uh, communities. Um, I, I can give you an example from one of the Algerian um, essays, if I might read a, a quick uh, quote. This sure. is from Daniel Mezguiche's essay, which is called, "Not No, Not Jewish, Israelite. And he's talking about the Cremieux Decree, which gave um, Algerian Jews French citizenship while denying it to their Muslim counterparts. And he writes, yes, as soon as the Jews of Algeria obtained their French ID cards, they began to lose their Jewish identities. From the Arab Jews they once were, they became not French Jews, but Jewish French men and women. In order to no longer be Arabs, they nearly ceased being Jewish. And this is just one, end quote, this is just one example amongst um, many, especially in the Algeria section, where you see the way um, colonial policy drives a wedge, to borrow Rebecca's term, between the Jewish and Muslim communities. Mm -hmm. I think um, just a quick follow-up, uh, one of the going back back to Libya, but in Aldo Nauri's essay when he's writing about his older brother mm. um, and his uh, brothers, so they moved from Libya to Algeria. Um, I think they were expelled under Mussolini and they had to go because they had French citizenship. So they went to Algeria um, and the, the older brother befriends a, a local Muslim boy uh, who kind of wants them to get on the, you know, anti-colonial bandwagon, proverbial bandwagon. Mm -hmm. and, and the brother says, mm -hmm. no, I can't because going mm -hmm. from Libya under colonization mm -hmm. um, to French colonization, like when we got here, the French called me like, sir. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and right. that was the first time that I had ever been treated you know, like a yeah. yeah, with respect, like like yeah. a dignified human being by a colonizing right. power. So, right. you know, he says he and to quote again, his brother says it was France who gave me back my dignity. France is my motherland. Mm -hmm. End quote. Um, so, looking at kind of the different relationships to colonial power among indigenous groups, and then I think that's one of the most kind of fascinating points for me in this essay is you know. Italian colonialism versus French colonialism. Mm -hmm. And again, that these are all being written in French because of the Alliance the schools. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of how all these dynamics fit together. Um, I think that's, you know, poses a lot of questions. And I know in the case of Libya, I don't, there's a lot of work to be done there. So For I sure. hope that it might inspire some people to, to sure. get to digging in the books and the archives. <laughs> For sure. Exactly right. What is this book's contribution to our understanding of everyday life in the Mediterranean in the mid 20th century? 
All right. Um, so I'll, I'll take this one. Um, I, and this is going to start again with kind of the basic that I, I feel like I've been repeating, but it is worth repeating um, that, you know, first that there were Jews in the Mediterranean and that they had a multiple, a wide variety of experience. So, you know, in addition to the fact that kind of the, the conflict in the Middle East tends to, I think, overdetermine a lot of what we understand now as relation, Jewish Muslim relations, if I could put that even as a term. Um, mm-hmm. There is no such thing as a Jewish experience mm-hmm. in a country. They, they were varied, they were multiple based mm-hmm. on, you know, whether your family history was Sephardic or Ashkenazic, or mm-hmm. in the case of one of our Egyptian authors, Karyate Jew- Jews, mm-hmm. um, you have also, you know, families that are much more modest or families that have more means families Mm -hmm. that are more or less observant. You know, there's Mm -hmm. someone who mentions in here that they would eat a ham sandwich every once in a while. Um, (laughs) So there, it it, it, kind of at the one hand, it's hard to, to put them together. You can't schematize what's happening because they're so Mm -hmm. different. And at the same time, they speak to kind of similar, similar Mm -hmm. themes and ideas as, as Leah mentioned in the beginning of this discussion. Um, you know, there's also, I think, a very interesting kind of reflection on the variety of language, the variety of attitudes toward language, and it doesn't always add up. So for some, you know, speaking Arabic is too Jewish, and for some, speaking Arabic is too Arab. Arab, You can't see my air quotes, but they're there. Um, And then also kind of just the variety of relationships between Jews and their Muslim counterparts. And then also, you know, depending on what country, when uh, you know, there's also other religious minorities um, that are mentioned. Um, and then finally, I think kind of, and this is a little bit of me on my, <laughs> because of my own interest, uh, research interest in in the hist- historians have done a lot more work on kind of North African Jewish experience um, in literary studies, particularly in the case of Algeria, where Algerian Jews were bestowed French citizenship in 1870 with the Camus decree, um, kind of they get erased from discussions of what local life was like for colonized populations. Um, so to see kind of complications of this narrative of, you know, the Jews became French because you have Algerian authors writing about, you know, the French from France mm-hmm. were not French like them. Um, right. That I think is really valuable um, yeah. because it starts to kind of chip away at some of these like very, um, entrenched and somewhat essentializing narratives of different you know groups that are represented as kind of like mutually exclusive or at least like easily delimited and that's not always the case exactly right can you compare and contrast the conditions in the different countries according to the stories that you present in the volume Mm so I'm, I'm going to make a stab at this. It's, um, and I think the important piece of this question is according to the stories presented. Um, so in Turkey, for example, you know, three out of the four authors cite the imposition of the barlik or this, um, this tax that uh, we mentioned earlier as a major turning point for the Jews. That's something that is, wouldn't necessarily call it a condition, but it's something that is salient and relevant and unique to um, the Turkish situation. Um, for the Lebanese stories, unfortunately, we only have two, uh, which is a shame because there are there are many more, um, obviously, many more Jewish um, 
writers, intellectuals, thinkers, journalists who, who might be able to reflect on their childhood in Lebanon and, and sort of add more, more, um, more texture to the, the narrative. But what, what one notices about the two stories we have from Lebanon is they really plunge back into childhood. Um, there's much less of the kind of intervention of a narrating ad adult um, uh, and much more focused on sort of a lived experience as a child, right? So the adult writer trying to sort of just recapture his own childhood voice and childhood uh, experience. Um, it's also interesting when we look at the Egyptian stories of which there are three, um, not a single one focuses on interfaith relations. And again, I would hesitate to sort of generalize from this because again, we only have three stories and there are far more um, there are far more Egyptian Jews who would be capable of writing about their their Jewish childhoods in, in Egypt. But notably of these three, they're all focused on Judeo-Jewish uh, relationships. So uh, reader Rachel Cohen is focused really on her relationship with her brother um, and talking about sort of food and nostalgia. Um, Toby Nathan's piece is also it's focused on the story of his name, which is absolutely fascinating and <laughs> one of one of the one of my favorite reads in the book. Actually, mm. both of those stories are kind of joyous and bright. Uh, Mireille Cohen Messaouda, who wrote a, an essay called *The Blue Muslims*, um, her piece is much darker and it's about sort of being being a certain kind of Jew amongst other Jews um, and her experience as a, a little girl who was sort of afraid of everything. Um, but in those three stories, we don't have any sort of sense of interfaith tensions or anti-Semitism. Um, the Tunisian stories tend to be marked by, unsurprisingly, by the experience of the Nazi occupation, which is unique to, um, to the countries of the Maghreb. Tunisia was the only of those three countries to actually be occupied by the Nazis during World War II. Um, Algeria, again, unsurprisingly, we've mentioned this several times, the question of the Cremieux decree and the fact that Algerian Jews were made French citizens, whereas Algerian Muslims were not. Um, very clearly marks uh, marks those stories and the experience of childhood. And then I would say in Morocco, um, two things stand out. One is um, sort of the story of the departure of the Moroccan Jews as a kind of mm -hmm. haunting specter and as a kind of important trope. Mm -hmm. And then also in rereading the Moroccan stories, um, what stood out to me, especially this time, was that um, that language is not problematized as much in the Moroccan stories as it is perhaps in the Tunisian and Algerian stories. Um, and again, we're sort of schematizing based on the, the samples that we have, but, uh, but I thought that was a notable thing to, to bring up. Thank you for sharing that. I was impressed by the references and allusions to food throughout mm -hmm. the volume. Can you comment on the role of food in these stories? What do these pieces teach us about culinary aesthetics in the countries presented? What roles do taste, touch, and smell play in the narratives? Mm. In regard to particular stories in the book, I'd be curious if you could comment on the recipes presented yeah. in Lucette Heller Goldenberg's Mamada. Uh -huh. And I'd be curious if you can tell us about the apricot paste Amaradine the Syrian delicacy as it appears in Joe and Rita by Rita Rachel Cohen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we wish there were recipes. <laughs> I know. 
we have we have to sort of make do with a few basic ingredients if you want to try to make any of these. But um, it's certainly true that that food really permeates these narratives um, <laughs> and is always a kind of um, an opportunity for a kind of nostalgic reflection. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's sort of you read these and, and you sort of <laughs> you, you sort of uh, want to run to the kitchen and try and recreate these dishes because they all sound absolutely, absolutely delicious. Um, I, I will say this, I mean, you know, Proust didn't invent anything when he talked <laughs> about the the, Madeleine, the sort of um, the childhood memories that come rushing back to him when he dips his Madeleine into the into the cup of tea. Um, he didn't invent anything, but it's not for nothing that this is one of the most famous images in literature mm -hmm. across the world. Um, the olfactory, the sensory, um, the sensorial, these are all very powerful spurs for memory. And so I think it's not surprising that so many of these authors touch back to smells in the kitchen, smells in the street, um, observing the preparation of, of foods, observing sort of preparations of um, ritual feasts and meals, um, of uh, associating a certain place with the smell of the fried beignet that were sold there and things like that. I think, um, again, I think it, it's not for nothing that, that, that Proust sort of looks like he cornered the market on that. Um, I'll, I'll, take up, <laughs> I'll take up the apricot leather question, um, which comes up uh, in, um, in Rita Rachel Cohen's uh, essay, which is called Joe and Rita which is a story of her and her brother. Joe is her brother. Um, and the sort of um, final image of that essay is of Ameraldine, um, which is an apricot paste that sort of spread uh, over, um, over a piece of parchment so that it forms sort of a, a page itself. Um, I think we translated it as something like, or we explained it as something like apricot leather. Um, for anybody who grew up in the Midwest, I think the fruit roll-up might be um, the, the the more sort of obvious translation. Um, and what I think is absolutely fascinating and just delightful in the way she talks about this particular delicacy of the martyr childhood is the way that she, in fact, um, likens the sheet of fruit to a page of text, right? So it's a text that she can read because it has it, it is a sign of her childhood, um, but it's also something that she can consume, right? She can consume, but then there will always be more, so it can be reread and it can be reconsumed, kind of like a a sacred text, right? And um, also interestingly, throughout the paragraph, she she insists on calling it um, calling apricots by their Arabic name, which is Meshmesh. And so she talks about, you know, reading and writing the book of Meshmesh. And so mm -hmm. she kind of both naturalizes and renders foreign this notion of the, the apricot. Um, and I, I would also add that it's it's a shared uh, treat by both, both Jews and Muslims. So it's also a moment of kind of uh, syncretic bonding. Mm -hmm. I think just not too much to add, but one of the things that I realized when we were working on the footnotes is just kind of how broad some of these, are, you know, with variation, the different uh, foods, kind of which areas they encompass, how many names they go by. Um, occasionally, there would be like very, you know, we'd find something, and then we'd have to like change a couple letters or, or pronounce it slightly differently, and then realize it's actually something else. Um or I guess it's a different name for, or a similar name for the same thing. Um, but that was one of, uh, I mean, besides being very hungry, something that I found fascinating, <laughs> just interest in language. And then with also having studied a little bit of Arabic, um, kind of how we could 
kind of figure out what some of these these words were um I think one of my favorite like aha moments and doing a foot this is when you know that you're like at peak academic nerd when um there was one word that we thought was coffee and then it ended up being a type of noodle that they make right. in Algeria and That's I went right. down a rabbit hole for like what could this be That's and right. was very proud of myself when I when I figured it out um <laughs> and it also made finally made more sense in the context yes it made a lot more sense in the text <laughs> yeah I was struck by the story her name was Dorsina by Rosie Pinchas del Puig it ends with the following words in the forest of signs which I interpreted step by step as I made my way forward those of Jewish culture where the most discreet, invisible, and hushed, the synagogues far from the residential neighborhoods were difficult to enter and always closed, except for marriages and burials, two contrasting events, one all in white, the other all in black, both equally distressing. There was nothing to see, nothing to do, except to look at the backs of men rocking back and forth in their prayer shawls. My father did not know how to pray, he passed his reticence on to me. And after the war, after the discriminatory measures taken against minorities and from the founding of Ataturk's secular republic, Jews were advised to be discreet, to keep a low profile. Like in France, to forget, to be forgotten after what had happened. To be forgotten, I asked for nothing more. To become another to be reborn in French and in France, to the point of no longer knowing who I was, to the point where the Hebrew of prayers and the streets strings me back to the stories of my grandmother, drawn from our book, to the synagogues without images, to the humble light of the mosques. Mm -hmm. Can you expand upon this passage for us? Mm -hmm. what's, mm -hmm. what's taking place here? Can you contextualize these remarks? Yeah, I'll give this a shot. So this is the, as you mentioned, this is the end of her essay, um, essay titled, her name was Durcine, and the titular Durcine is actually um, a, a Turkish Muslim um, woman who works as a, basically as a domestic servant in, uh, in the author's house. Um, Durcine is a woman that the author as a young girl admires very much, um, spends a lot of time with, um, Dursini also interestingly is a woman from the countryside, whereas our author is a, an urbanite, a city dweller. And so in this in this um, essay, we also get a sense of other types of divides other than just Jew Muslim. We get um, the sense of the important cult cultural divide between the big cities and the countryside um, and the rural environment. And so um, to, to give a little context for how this essay concludes, um, throughout the, the text, uh, Pines del Puech is describing a kind of open secular family. Um, she went to a secular school and she actually um, attended um, religious class, so, uh, Islamic uh, religious class, because she had nowhere else to go. So not because she was particularly sort of um, 
philosophically oriented or, or faithfully oriented towards um, Islam, but because it seemed like a good way to pass the time as a, as a young Jewish girl, she could have gotten out of that, but um, she decided to go anyway. And she talks about coming home, reciting verses from the Quran and how her family actually encouraged her Jewish family again, encouraged her to, um, to, to know the Quran and to, and to know about um, Islam. Um, it's and she spends time with Dorsine. She she prays with Dorsine. So she talks about you know, um, you know, sharing the the, the prayer mat with Dorsine. So she she sort of performs rituals related um, more to Islam than to Judaism. And in fact we don't see our author practicing Judaism at all as a child. Her Judaism seems to be worn very lightly. Um, when the author does mention the anti-Jewish measures that were taken in Turkey, she always refers to them as measures against minorities. Uh, she doesn't underscore sort of special, this, any kind of particular anti-Semitic um, valence to, uh, to the measures. Um, uh, and she describes a very discreet experience of Judaism as a child. Um, one in which one in which Judaism is always sort of hand in hand with Islam. And, and I'll just note the last line of the of the text where she says, um, uh, to the point of no longer knowing who I was, etc., um, to the point of uh, where the Hebrew of prayers and the streets brings me back to the stories of my grandmother drawn from our book to synagogues without images, to the humble light of the mosques. And so I just want to point out that her essay ends with the word mosques, right? So the mosques, symbol of Islam, get the last word in her story. And this her kind of complex relationship to Judaism isn't motivated in the text by a kind of experience of, of anti-Semitism, which I think is, is very interesting. Um, and so this sort of delicate image of the humble light of the mosques um, emerges as the sort of dominant image of her her childhood, um, which I think is, is a very lovely way to end the, the essay. Thank you. Can you explain the historical context behind Shoshana Buchobza's story, Nothing About Childhood? How did Habib Bourguiba of Tunisia treat Tunisia's Jews? Mm -hmm. In what ways is the story of the Jewish experience under the Bourguiba government in Tunisia here, typical or atypical of other communities and of other minorities? Um, so Shoshana Bukhabsa is um, one of our Tunisian authors. Um, she makes mention of, she makes a very brief mention of Habib Bourguiba, um, who is the major, was the major figure of uh, Tunisian independence from France. Um, he was the country's first uh, first president to be elected um, in in free elections post uh, after the colonial era. Um, the story of Bourguiba's uh, treatment of um, the Jews in Tunisia is um, is I, I guess I'll say to, to be brief a kind of ambivalent and somewhat contested narrative. Um, in certain ways, he did a lot to defend the Tunisian Jews, and I think actually Tunisian Jews prior to independence looked to Bourguiba to make a place for them in um, in what would become the independent Tunisia. Um, he again, he did he did many things to defend the Tunisian Jews and the the community. Um, he very publicly differentiated Jews from Zionists, for example. Um, he he had a discourse that wasn't necessarily common amongst leaders of his generation in the Arab world. 
In other ways, he also took measures that weakened the Jewish community, that made it less powerful as a community within Tunisia. And what um, what Shoshana Bukobsa refers to in her uh, in her essay, uh, she writes, um, the Bourguiba government had prevented Jews from taking their assets with them when they left, so as not to leave their entire fortune behind. Jews bought objects. My parents had blankets woven for themselves in gafsa, blankets that were heavier than carpets, so heavy that we felt crushed beneath their weight. Even better, our cousins had hundreds of drums of olive oil shipped to Paris, a stock that took years to consume, whose empties then served as tables and chairs. So what she's referring to here is a measure taken against um, Jews who were interested in leaving the country and immigrating mainly to France, but also to Israel and to Canada at the time, um, which prevented them from taking any liquid assets with them. Um, and this comes up also in Ida Kumer's essay, where she talks about, um, she makes a reference to what she calls frozen assets beach. <laughs> Um, so this was uh, this was the the beach where where the Jews went um, in outside of uh, tu Tunis outside of the capital, uh, and it became known as Frozen Assets Beach because all of the Jews had their assets frozen. In other words, they could withdraw money, but they couldn't take it out of the country. Um, and so this, um, this this treatment of the Jews that's uh, that's sort of um, lately referenced in these stories. Um, it doesn't really paint the whole picture of Bourguiba's relationship with, uh, with the Jews of Tunisia, but it does give a sense of, um, of the ways in which Jewish departure from Tunisia, and in this sense, it's generalizable to other countries, was a tense departure, right? A departure that had to be prepared uh, for years that involved leaving a lot behind. Um, in this case, the reference is to leaving behind sort of currency, but um, many people had to leave behind personal objects, um, photo albums, um, things that, you know, symbols of the family and things like that. And I think that is, um, to a certain extent, I don't know if I would call it typical, but it's certainly generalizable to, to other narratives of departure. Can you tell us about the social, cultural, and physical geography of La Goulette, Tunisia? How does Hubert Haddad presented in his story of wings and footprints. Um, so La Goulette, interestingly, so is, um, it's too bad we can't show a map. So La Goulette is, has a very interesting sort of geographical position on the coast of um, Tunisia. Um, it's sort of part of the greater urban area that is the capital Tunis. Um, and Tunis sort of sits on, it sits on the Gulf of Tunis and the Bay of Carthage, but it also is, sort of geographically marked by a large lake um, that is constituted by a breakwater um, that reaches out into the Gulf. And so La Goulette sort of sits at the mouth that, um, that marks the transition from the Gulf of Tunis to the Lake of Tunis. Um, so it's a kind of promontory. It's a place from which you can face both the open sea open Mediterranean and turn inward to see the lake that is kind of more intimate sea that marks the capital. Um, it's called La Goulette, we think, because, um, well, this is also disputed, but um, it, we think it's a, it's a kind of bastardization of an Italian word, La Goletta, which refers to the, the throat. 
Um, the Arabic name is Hak el Wed, which means the river's mouth. So it's basically a reference to this sort of narrow um, spit of water that um, that marks the transition between the Mediterranean Sea and the Lake of Tunis. La Goulette itself is kind of a picturesque fishing village. Um, it's on the way from the sort of downtown capital to the kind of tonier outskirts of Tunis. Um, uh, La Marsa, Sibu Said, Carthage. Um, it was an important site for Italian immigration. There was a very large Sicilian community there in the 19th century. Um, also a major site for um, uh, Jews and Maltese. So it was a very kind of cosmopolitan, eth ethnically diverse spot, um, particularly for families of modest means from the capital to escape the heat of the capital and to get some breeze um, in the summer. Um, it's it's a kind of I would call it a kind of folkloric site. La Goulette comes up a lot in um, in Albert Memmi's writing, both his autobiographical writing and his fictional writing about his childhood growing up in Tunis. Uh, there's a wonderful film by Ferid Bouguedia called Un Été à la Goulette, which also deals with a kind of um, the sort of social, religious, and ethnic mixity of La Goulette. It features daughters from three different families, one Catholic, one um, Muslim, and one Jewish, and the ways in which these families interact with each other in the moments where uh, where tensions arise. So it's, an, it's interesting. This question is interesting because actually the ways in which um, Jewish experience is marked in all of these essays in all of these countries by by physical geographical sites is, is actually a really interesting way um, to read this volume. Thank you. Can you comment on the importance of the Arabic language in Aida Kumer's The Broken Bargain? I, I will get us started on that sure. one. Um, <laughs> sure. So I think um, in Kumer's piece, I see you know, in, in that piece and also in, in other ones, I think what's interest, what was interesting for me uh, is, and I've Again, I feel like I keep saying this. I've mentioned this before, um, the different relationships to Arabic and the different attitudes toward it. Um, so that particularly, I think, Leah, when we were chatting, you mentioned, you pointed out that a lot of the Tunisian authors are, you know, have their fluency in Arabic and and are kind of proud of being able to speak it. And then, you know, even as Akumar says, she can do that without a Jewish accent. Um, and so then you see also kind of, different authors having different experiences, um, you know, particularly uh, in Algeria. Um, so I'm going to skip now to the to the neighbor to the West. Um, but different attitudes towards um, and then particularly in their reading. And again, this goes back to the translation question. But when they're writing in Arabic where there's the one, um, you know, different moments when it gets inflected by French, when it gets inflected by Spanish in some places, when it gets inflected by, you know, Judeo-Spanish or Ladino, um, and then the different types of Arabic uh, that there are. Um, so sometimes, you know, that was a difficult to... a difficult question that we wrestled with a lot in the translation of the book. Um, and then I... I think, sorry, I'm pointing out all the things that I find interesting and not answering your question in, per in particular. Um, but one of the moments I think that I thought was uh, funny in one of the essays, we have Ben Susan who goes to Jelfa and he mm -hmm. doesn't really speak Arabic and he comes back speaking like a native. And then, you know, his parents have to think for a minute, like, 
you know, the language that was at one point kind of a secret one that we couldn't necessarily speak right. with our, now we need to be more careful. Um, so watching kind of how it goes through the generations um, or, or doesn't, mm. um, and, or when, um, you know, Naudi, when he goes back to uh, Algeria and he, he doesn't say to the hitchhikers who are showing them around that they, um, they know uh, that, that he can understand what they're saying or that he could speak Arabic. So kind mm -hmm. of the, the different, I don't know if politics is the right word, but maybe in a certain sense, um, attitudes towards relationships with different feelings. Um, uh, it, I think it, it again, kind of goes to this, which we were talking about earlier, that although there are so many threads that one can pick up on that are common, one of the commonalities is that there will be something like the uh, use of Arabic or the uh, attitudes towards Arabic, but then in all the essays, it's going to be different. Um, mm -hmm. So how hard it is to generalize, um, e mm -hmm. even amongst kind of, you know, the Tunisian authors, you have different ones, as Leah, you were pointing out, um, that, you know, Nimuati doesn't speak Arabic at all. Um, and then Hibar Haddad is talking about the moment when Arabic stops being spoken. Um, so I think it is at least, I will say, not in the Turkish, <laughs> Turkish authors aside, um, I feel like Arabic is always kind of a constant throughout these essays in more or less um, obvious or um, explicit mentions. Mm. Absolutely. How do you the status and position of Jews change in Morocco after Moroccan independence from France. What does Ralph Toledano in his piece, mm. Living Between the Lines, have to say about this? Mm. I mean, similar to the Jews of all of these countries, um, the Moroccan Jews would leave basically en masse, um, not all at the same time, but um, in, in a kind of series of um, differently motivated waves of massive uh, emigration. Um, the, the story of, um, of Moroccan Jews, though, um, is, uh, differs a little bit. The story of their, 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 their transfer to Israel, if we can call it that, is, uh, is somewhat different from what we find um, in the other countries of the Maghreb. In Algeria, the Jews went um, you know, almost 100% to France. In Tunisia, there was some immigration to Israel, but also primarily to France. But there was a lot of interest in sort of cultivating and, shall we say, um, uh, what's the word, like recruiting um, Moroccan Jews um, for a new life in Israel. Um, I, I think the last line of Toledano's essay is, is extremely telling. Um, it ends with this, this statement, very short, um, after independence, I had become a Moroccan Jew, um, which seems strange. Obviously, he was born a Moroccan Jew. Um, but what he means by that is that um, at the moment of independence, his identity could really no longer just be contained within the simple label of Moroccan, right? He was no longer allowed, in air quotes, to be just Moroccan. Um, but he, his Jewishness sets him apart, and he would need to distinguish himself as something other than just a regular, a regular, uh, in air quotes, um, Moroccan Jew. Um, so, you know, the status of um, the status of Jews post independence in Morocco is. Um, is also interesting because I think Morocco, more than any of the other countries represented in this volume, um, 
has, seems to have done more to sort of reconcile with its Jewish past and to recognize its Jewish roots. Um, and here I would say Andre Azoulay's essay is extremely interesting, also somewhat problematic. Um, but he points out that there was a revision to the Moroccan constitution uh, in 2011 that, um, that explicitly refers to the foundational diversity of Morocco, um, gesturing both to Jews, but also to Berbers and Andalusians. And he offers a kind of sunny vision of, um, of cohabitation that, that might not always be accurate. Um, but but nonetheless, again, Morocco remains interesting because it is it is certainly the one country represented in the volume where um, that is easiest for Jews to return to. It's probably the most interested in playing up its Jewish traditions um, that invests in the restoration of, of Jewish sites uh, in heritage tours um, and uh, things like that. And then, of course, you know, the Azoulay essay is very interesting to read alongside um, uh, Siboni's essay, Daniel Siboni's essay, where he talks about um, presenting his uh, his autobiography at a bookstore in Marrakesh. And he talks about um, the kind of pushback he gets from one of the locals about um, about uh, about being a, a Moroccan Jew. So again, mm -hmm. with, within the stories representing Morocco, we, we actually have an interesting variety of experience in terms of what the status of Jews was after um, after independence. And just a very quick note um, that for, um, I, I don't know if, if we mentioned this or not, but Morocco had the large, like pretty like kind of by far and away the largest community of Jews of any kind of country of Islam majority. Um, right. So there is a very significant population there. Um, right that I think probably also is a factor in some of these. Absolutely right. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. For, thanks for adding that. Do you have any favorite stories or anecdotes from the book? If yes, can you share which ones speak most to you or spoke most to you? Why are they personally relevant to you? If not, why is it hard to select one favorite? Um, can you share which stories had the greatest personal impact on you? And if that's a hard question to answer, why is this a hard question to answer? <laughs> uh, um, do you want to go ahead? Rebecca? Sure. Um, I think I, I've already mentioned that um, for me, it's, you know, there's moments in particular essays that I think shine. Um, mm. So as I mentioned before in Andre Azoulay's essay, um, about the their neighbor bringing them back a little bit of the holy land that for me mm -hmm. just hit hard in a good way um but kind of it's just it, it's the opposite of what could happen in our current climate um mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i mean in some ways it's hopeful because if, if if we could go from how that was to how this is then there's got to be another option mm -hmm. um and then um, in Elia's story, The Dead End Alley, um, and it's it's written like a story and it's written kind of from a, in some ways from a child's eye view. So he's writing about these kind of like three landlords, it's, they're related. And the language for referring to them is always, you know, that like the three elephants or the three, mm -hmm. I mean, just like this litany of- Pachyderms, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ridiculous. Um, you know, terms that it just, you know, that one, made me laugh out loud when I was reading yeah. it, which doesn't always happen with things that I'm reading for yeah. work or for school. Um, yeah. And then the last one, I will say, uh, Toby Nathan's essay, that last 
paragraph where he's talking about his name yeah. um, and you know my name was going to be this but then it was going to be that because right. of this political reason and then it became this right. because of that political reason and I feel like that paragraph kind of sums up yeah. a lot of the tensions and the dynamics um, and the difficulties of just you know of the period and then of also right. kind of talking about different groups of people that existed together under certain uh, structures and, and yeah. governments and politics and regimes and all of that yeah. and Leah, what about you? <laughs> well, it's interesting. We have a couple in common, although we didn't um, we didn't uh, we, we didn't compare notes on this ahead of time. Um, I also really like Lucien Lia's um, essay, The Dead End Alley, um, for for its humor. And it's true that um, this is not material that always seems to lend itself to <laughs> humor. Um, it's an essay in which the, the 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 author does talk about childhood experiences of anti-Semitic taunts and things like that, but he does it in a way, he does it with a kind of light touch and also um, with a kind of derisiveness that takes the sting out of it. And um, in the description of this trio of landlords that sort of um, make his and his family's life miserable every summer is just hilarious. And so it's really, I mean, it's really a great read um, and, 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 and just, just really an interesting way of um, of representing this particular time of childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really like an essay that I know Rebecca doesn't like. It's the Kaddish for a Lost <laughs> Childhood by Roger Dadoun, which I mentioned before, which I think is just like a, a love poem to the city of Oran. I, I find it very beautiful. It was also um, one of the most difficult pieces to translate and edit. Um, which, it was a doozy. Which might make it, make it why it doesn't sit well with Rebecca. Um, I also I also really have a soft spot for Toby Nathan's essay, this is called Jour de Fête, where he talks about the sort of, um, well, he talks about the history of his name, how he came to be called Toby. Um, and it's um, it's a story about history and about um, colonization as well, all told mm-hmm. through a signifier, um, which is great. And then um, I would also mention um, Daniel Mezguiche's essay, which we also mm-hmm. talked about already, mm-hmm. called um, the title of which is not Jewish, um, Israelite. And it's a little bit more of a kind of straightforward, slightly perhaps more academic than the other texts, but it really... Um, contains a lot of interesting, mindful reflections on questions about language and memory and identity and signifiers. I think it's really, really well done. Um, so actually, it's not hard for us to come up with our favorites. No. <laughs> if you don't want me asking, what aspects of your editing process were most challenging for you? And which aspects of your editing process were most therapeutic for you? Mm. In regard to the challenging aspects, how did you handle these adversities in regard to the therapeutic aspects? How did you grow from the material you were working with? Mm. It's funny. We don't often, I don't think we're often asked to reflect on these kinds of things. And it's actually really valuable. Um, I, I would say um, this could be a very long answer. I'll try to be, be succinct, but um, I think the Academy, the American Academy at any rate is, is, um, is wrestling with the value of translation as an intellectual practice, as a scholarly practice, as an academic practice. And so when one finds oneself, as I found myself when I started this project, um, an assistant professor on a tenure track at a major research institution, I had to consider how to use my time, knowing that a, a project like this one, that is essentially a translation of a previously published work, is not going to be recognized um, for major 
professional development bids like tenure and um, promotion to full professor, which partly explains why I've been working on this project for more than 10 years. Um, it had to unfortunately take a backseat to the production of um, the kind of scholarship that would allow me to advance in my career. Um, I think that's changing. I think there's actually just in the past few years, there's been a kind of awakening about um, the variety of scholarly practice, um, about recognizing different forms, about recognizing um, different venues for publication. And so I think, um, I mean, I think the fact that this is being published with UC Press is a testament to what the Academy is now willing to look at as, um, as valuable scholarship. Um, so there was there was that, which is a sort of more personal aspect. And well, I mean, another, this is also a personal aspect is that um, a lot of the labor that went into this book was free labor. Um, I wasn't able to pay the translators. I did some of the translation myself, but not the majority of it. Um, and so the other three translators worked for free, um, working to some degree for professional recognition because publishing a translation is also something that one can, um, that is part of one's sort of calling card as, a, as an academic, as a professional scholar. Um, but, um, but the funding isn't there to pay uh, translators and that's, um, that's something that's not without its ethical um, stumbling blocks for me. Um, therapeutic, I would say, um, the, when I initially agreed to take this project on, I thought that I would just sort of have it translated into English and publish it in a way that was sort of a mirror of the original. Um, but through talking with different working groups, um, you know, sort of writers groups and, and sort of scholarly support groups, um, it, it occurred to me that this book in translation could take on a different form, um, which indeed it has. And I would say that that kind of freedom to to release myself from the form of the original and to go towards something that made sense as a pedagogical tool was extremely um, was extremely motivating for me um, and and sort of gave the project a real spark uh, in terms of my own uh, my own investment in it. And I'll say last thing, and this is a good transition transition to Rebecca, is that um, you know Rebecca was up until a couple of weeks ago um, my doctoral student <laughs> and my advisee. Um, she's just finished her PhD and is going on to greener pastures and higher grounds, and I, I couldn't be more proud of her. Um, but it, it just so happened that her work it well, didn't just so happen, but you know confluence of things. Um, Rebecca's uh, dissertation work dovetails so perfectly with the, this project, which doesn't always happen. And I have a number of PhD students um, who are working on different projects that are important to me as well, but I don't necessarily have an, a project to propose them that would allow us to participate in that kind of common editorial project. But um, the confluence of, of time and space uh, brought this project into my life at a moment where Rebecca was starting her work on her dissertation. And I have to say, as an advisor, there's a really immense satisfaction in being able to provide this type of experience to a graduate student and then to share this experience with um, with somebody as they're also pursuing their own path, um, writing what will be their first book. Um, and so, you know, that's really something you, know, you can't put a, you can't put a price on that. It's, it's really a great experience. Uh, so, so I will start with the great experiences um, uh, and then I will end on the more challenging note. Um, but uh, I think kind of from my perspective, um, I'm very well aware that this is not the type of opportunity that everybody gets to do as a PhD student. Um, and it's not anything 
I could never have anticipated um, having this, you know, having, well, I'm holding it up in the Zoom, but, <laughs> you know, having a book with my name as I graduated is, is such, it's such a wonderful, um, it's such a, a wonderful and unexpected and really like validating and exciting part of my program that I could never have anticipated. Um, we don't get the off option offer as grad students to kind of see how the sausage is made. Um, you know, we, <laughs> we are often produced with, you know, the peer reviewed uh, journal article or, you know, assigned the monograph or we read the introduction to an edited volume um, while we're in class or while we are doing our own research. Um, but we don't get to necessarily see how that comes to be. So that process for me um you know, at one point Leah asked me, you know, do you want to be on all the emails? And I was like, yes, I want to be on all the emails because I want to see all the things that happen. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I felt a little bit like I was snooping. <laughs> um, but that has been really wonderful. Um, also, my promotion, if I will, to co-editor was a really exciting moment. Um, as a grad student, you often hear horror stories about advisors mistreating their students or claiming their work and to have not not only not that not happen, but then to have my work recognized in this way um, was just I'm so grateful for that. And it was a really meaningful experience for me. I think I would have it would have been meaningful to work on this project regardless of whether or not my name was on it. Um, but that was I mean, it, I'm just, it was great. Um, and then I guess maybe some of the difficulties um, also in working with one's advisor. Um, uh, when I, when Leah asked me if I would go over her introduction, um, I'm very used to Leah reading my work and giving critical feedback on my work. Um, I'm not so used to giving critical feedback to my advisor. <laughs> um and so there was, you know, which Leah's scholarship is 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 amazing as part of the reason that I have really liked working with her and learned so much from her. Um, and also when there were moments um, that I felt needed to be addressed, there was one in particular about kind of needing to bring out more kind of the racialized implications of the term Arab in the introduction. Um, that was a little bit difficult for me to figure out how to do that. And I, I think I did. And I think Leah addressed it very well. Um, but that was not that was a. A little bit of a challenge for me as a grad student um, at that point. Mm -hmm. um, I also, I am, as a literary scholar, I'm not so versed in the writing of history. So writing the country snapshots was a little bit of a different style of writing that I didn't have so much experience with um, that took some getting used to. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, I think Aliyah brought up earlier with uh, the Dadun piece, um, some of the translations were really challenging, mm -hmm. um, particularly the, I remember Dadun and then also uh, Buganim Ami's piece um, mm -hmm. were just, I remember editing them and, and having to put them down and go back to them multiple right, times yeah. because they, I knew something was off, but I couldn't figure mm -hmm. out what it was because it mm. would, you know, and then how much poetic liberty can you take um, right. with a translation? Do you keep with the spirit or do you keep with what they've written? Um, so those were some challenges. And I think a lot of back and forth with Leah and then also with the translators. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm very, I mean, satisfied. I feel if it is not, is not enough. I'm, I'm thrilled mm -hmm. with how it all turned out. Um, yeah. So I guess yeah, that is I a mean... positive note to my challenges section. 
<laughs> no, but we really benefited from a great, um, a great working relationship with um, with the translators, with um, with Lila Sebar herself, who mm. has been sort of uh, with us through this whole process, um, with the original publisher in France. Um, and frankly, also with each other, um, as Rebecca points out, you know, it's not um, not always obvious maybe to work as co-editors when one has another relationship that is somewhat informed by hierarchies. Um, but, you know, if Rebecca was afraid to say anything to me about the introduction, I never noticed. So. <laughs> no, <laughs> so I did. I, I did. I just I, I remember being it took me a. No, I, mean, I, I thought about notice, how I, I was going to convey. I didn't notice that you were worried. I, uh, I noticed that then, you said then something, I, Then course. I did my job in how I <laughs> conveyed that. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. I'm so proud of you, and I'm so impressed with you for <laughs> such a masterpiece. Um, <laughs> I can hardly thank you enough for your time, and I can hardly thank you enough on behalf of anonymous readers who will be benefiting <laughs> from the wisdom in these stories and these anecdotes without having the capacity to thank you personally. Uh, well, we welcome any anonymous readers to shed the veil of anonymity and, and reach yeah. out to us. <laughs> or non-anonymous readers in a potential class. <laughs> and thank you so much for your interest. This, again, this is, you know, my, my parents love the book, but they, they would love anything. So this is really <laughs> exciting for me as my first publication that you know your kind words and even being here with you to discuss um the volume is has just yeah. been such a great experience and i can't yeah. thank you enough yeah i echo um, that thanks for your terrific questions Ari. if you don't be asking you where has your time gone since completing this book what are you working on next now that this is behind you or are you taking a rest i'm taking a bit of a rest i am also taking a bit of a rest uh although i mean Arrest in parentheses, or not parentheses, arrest asterisks. I told myself, you know, now that the book is finished and I've I've just graduated, as Leah said a couple of weeks ago, that I'm going to kind of put things aside and give myself some space. And then I find, what am I reading for pleasure right now? A book written by Toby Nathan, who's one of the authors right. in our volume. So right, right. there's only so much rest that one can have when when, you know, when it's just such an interesting topic. So... Great. Thank you. Super. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, if you don't mind me sneaking in one more question, what did Layla Sabar herself think of this volume now that it's out? Can I ask you yeah. what she thought? Uh, has she communicated anything yeah, yeah. regarding this? I I'd love to hear her own feelings. Yeah. That's a super timely question because I actually just spoke to her on the phone today. Um, I was able to show her the cover of the book in December um, and I was able to show her along with one of the contributors. We met in Paris and I was able to bring it up on this computer screen and show it to them. And they both had tears in their eyes, I think. Um, and in fact, the contributor um, who was present is um, Rita Rachel Cohen, who is one of the people figured on the cover. She's um, in the top right hand photo with her brother, Joe. She's the little girl in the swimsuit. And I think she's pleased and touched and just um, over the moon to see this image of her brother and her as children on the cover. Um, 
so I mean, and it, it was extremely satisfying to see their reaction, to see how happy they were, to see how impressed they were with the design, um, the professionalism, but the quality of the book is really, um, the production quality is really amazing. I think Lena Seba, who had, you know, talked to me about doing this translation more than 10 years ago, was also somewhat relieved um, to see that it finally did come to fruition. Um, publishing in France tends to be much quicker than in the United States. And I think at various points in time, she might have doubted what was <laughs> doubted whether this would ever come to be. Um, but when I talked to her today, she had just received her copy in the mail and she just was so happy. Uh, you know, the smile came through over the telephone. Um, she was said she was so happy with um, you know with the, the choice of photos, so happy to see the way this work was being valorized and just really excited to be about the possibility of being read by so many more um, by, by so many more readers. This expanded readership I think is really really happy a happy thing for her. So she's uh, she's our fan and we're hers. So and I'm your fan. Uh, I hold you in the highest <laughs> possible regard and feel tremendously grateful for my dialogue with you today and for everything you shared. It was such a privilege for me to listen to you both in your thoughts and your reflections and can hardly express enough my appreciation for your generosity with your time in the course of this dialogue and my appreciation for the book that you've sacrificed so much to bring to fruition. Thank you again, Ari, Thank for you your questions much. and for your time yeah. and your interest. Thank you. To our listeners, I'm your host on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Leah Broskel and Rebecca Glassberg regarding their newly edited volume, a Jewish Childhood in the Muslim Mediterranean. Translated by Leah Broskow, Jane Kuntz, Rebecca Vince, and Robert Watson. This has been published in Berkeley by University of California Press 2023. Leah is a professor in the Department of European Languages and Cultural Studies at UCLA, University of California in Los Angeles. Rebecca is Reinhard Family Postdoctoral Fellow in Jewish Studies at the Taub Center for Jewish Studies at Stanford University. Thank you wholeheartedly. <laughs>